I see new life. I see new tides. Carry on through the years. Transform through the tears. Welcome back to Tears. Tides and Transformation, a podcast about healing. I am Bridget Flaherty. And I am Kiana Daniels. And today we are speaking with Anna Furderer. Hi, my name is Anna Furderer. I am a yoga teacher, a life coach, and a woman in recovery from substance abuse and many other things. Why don't we start with what does healing mean to you? Oh my goodness. You're the second person in the last few days that's asked me that. That is a loaded question for sure. Healing to me means taking a step back, feeling the pain fully, and then taking steps forward to healing that in whatever way possible and however much time that it takes to face that and face the past. And trial and error, what works best to kind of help myself rise up to be my best self. So can you take us a little bit on that journey? Who were you before that moment? What did life look like then? Before I entered into recovery, I was very much a different person. I was full of fear, lots of anger, lots of resentment. I thought I was the victim of all things, all circumstances, people's behavior, everything in life. I was the victim. I always felt sorry for myself pure chaos. I was addicted to drama, gossip, codependency, perfectionism, even though my life was the furthest thing from perfect that you could ever imagine because I was a mess. I was terrified of feeling anything. I drank to run away from feelings. And I also drank to run towards feelings of dopamine hits chasing a party, chasing good feelings, that's not realistic because we can't live without the uncomfortable feelings and the pain and the sadness, and we can't always live in a party. So I did anything I could to drink alcohol, to find alcohol, to find a party. My kids were my last priority, my husband as well. Finding booze, hiding it, lying about it took up all of my energy. The moment I stopped drinking, I started to spiral. The moment it started to leave my system, I started to withdraw because I had gotten to the point where I couldn't really go without it being in my system anymore. I didn't know how to cope with life. I didn't know how to cope with anxiety, depression, celebrations, deaths, grieving, none of it. I didn't know how to deal with that without numbing out. I was very, very selfish, self-centered. Motives behind anything I did were usually self-serving. I thought that I was a very giving, selfless person, but really I was in, I was, everything that I did was so that I could get something in return, a good feeling. So I was never giving from my heart. I was always giving out of obligation and I was giving in a way that would hopefully let me continue to drink. So that motive behind it was always me, 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 how can I serve Anna? How can I continue to drink more? How can I look better on the surface so that I can keep numbing and getting drunk? It was all about me. When I decided to, well, I didn't really decide when it was time for me to get sober back in 2015. My husband had a mini intervention with me 
basically because my family knew that I wouldn't do well if I felt cornered by several people at the same time kind of uh, ganged up on. They planned an intervention for me, and it was my husband, and it was a Friday night, the last day of July 2015, and he sat me down and kind of gave me an ultimatum. You either get help or you need to go. I think that he caught on to all of the lying and he knew that I was putting my kids in danger. That was the last straw, definitely. I think there was a situation where he got together with my family and they kind of swapped stories. As a collective, they saw, like, holy shit. Some of them would be like, I didn't know about that. And then someone else would be like, I didn't know about that. And you put it all together. And it's like, she's in danger of harming herself and definitely in danger of harming her kids and anyone else on the road or so many different terrible circumstances that could have taken place. It was to the point where I was humiliating myself so often and putting myself and kids in danger so often that that was the straw that broke the camel's back, basically, because I was not being a good mom. I was not being a good wife or a good human, really. And at that point in time, I knew it was time to surrender. I was almost hoping that somebody would say, it's time. Because I don't think that I, I don't know, because of pride, I wasn't going to do it on my own. When my husband did it for me and brought it up and gave me that ultimatum, it was like a sigh of relief, a weight off of my shoulders that I could go away because I went away to treatment. That was the way that worked best for me. I needed to go away and be with people who were trained to basically reset me, kind of clear my mind, clear the alcohol out of my body hit a giant reset button. That was the beginning of a lifelong healing journey for me. It was a complete surrender, a, an awakening, a God moment that gave me the strength to leave my family for pretty much a month. Because even when I think about doing that now, I'm like, how did I do that? That was not me. That was some other force behind me that sent me along to treatment because it's terrifying to think of leaving my husband and kids for that long again. So I know when I look back at that, that was a complete God moment. It has been a long road of ups and downs on this healing journey, but I would not trade it for anything in the world because it's brought me where I am now. I was completely sick in mind, body, and spirit. I was completely unaware. Alcohol was not my only issue many, many deep-seated issues. And if I hadn't started that journey to recovery from substance abuse, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now, not even not even close. I don't know what I would be doing, honestly. Probably dead or in jail. I mean, I can't even, I'm not even kidding when I say that. As someone personally who left my family, my children, for two months to address my mental health, I know how critical and how impactful a reset like that can be and how life-changing it can be. And that's exactly what it was for Anna. The way I see it is it's kind of self-sacrificing at the same time, not selfish. It's a courageous decision to leave your family to go take care of yourself, to preserve yourself so that you can not only be better for yourself, but for them as well. In my opinion, I see that as self-sacrificing and something super courageous and challenging as heck to do. And, you know, I think it's a really powerful story because sometimes love and support looks like holding someone accountable 
and calling them on the bullshit. Sometimes love looks like holding space, but sometimes love looks like an intervention. It looks like this is enough. It's time for you to do something. The tough love, which is challenging to do, is definitely holding people accountable so that they can be better, but also to the greater family unit. It sounds like she's grateful for her husband being able to do that. And that was a courageous act on his part as well to save their family. Yes, absolutely. Especially in these situations, real help with addiction or mental health. It's a coordinated effort to get someone into a program, into a recovery program. It's not just, hey, you need to get help or you're a mess, do something about it. It is recognizing that your loved one needs support. They need to take the action, but they also need coordinated efforts so that as soon as they're ready, there's something there that they can go to. She said for her specifically, the immediacy of immediately after her agreeing, having things lined up was really important. She actually said that she recommends getting professionals involved. I would say that hiring a professional interventionist is a big help because they give you steps in how to approach it in the healthiest, most mindful way. My family did not do that, but it ended up working out fine in our case. I know that some cases are more complicated and complex. So having someone there who's trained in how to have that conversation and the steps to take leading up to it is very helpful. So he sat me down and my family had already done the research, my sister especially, on on treatment centers. And if I said, okay, I'm ready, then they kind of already had the next steps mapped out, which is great because you don't want a huge amount of time between that moment of surrender and when you can get into a facility. You don't want to let a lot of days go by because the patient or the addict may lose that momentum and change their mind, talk themselves out of it. So having something ready, having a plan ready or options ready is a really good idea. My sister had that, had a couple places laid out. I think my husband called right away to the first place and was like, my wife needs help. And then they'll ask questions about whether or not you need detox. If there's enough alcohol in your system, you'd need detox. And I did feel like I needed detox. Alcohol detox can be life-threatening because you can have seizures, you can die. And so if you have enough in your system, then you do want to detox first for however long. Usually it's no longer than a week before you go into just a normal treatment setting. So I did go away to detox first. So my husband called. They said, yeah, she sounds like she needs detox. Take her to a detox center first and then we'll get a bed for her. I went away to St. Elizabeth's in North Northern Kentucky for detox. And then straight away from there, they had a bed ready for me at Cumberland Heights is where I went right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. It was for me a wonderful healing experience and facility. The counselors were amazing. They had meditation. They had awesome groups. They introduced me to 12 steps. The facility was very comfortable, which made me more comfortable and made the process more bearable to be away from my family in a setting that was easy to relax in. And then <laughs> this is not important to some people. The food there was amazing. And that was also very comforting. And they're known for their really good food, which is just kind of comical because you think that a treatment center would have really crummy food. But this Cumberland Heights 
it was delicious. And so that brought even more comfort to the experience. And they had hiking and different adventures that you could take on the grounds. And that was really great for me. So, and this is a complete privileged opportunity that I got to find a place that really fit what I needed. And I know that not everyone has the resources to do that. So I was extremely privileged to be able to move forward so quickly also in my treatment because not everyone, again, has the resources to be able to do that. And I hope that that changes for Americans to be able to get a way to treatment faster and easier because the intake process can be very daunting. Insurance, yada, yada. If you don't have the right perfect thing, you kind of get taken around in circles And then that's not going to help anyone overcome addiction, mental health issues, so on and so forth in any way. Part of the reason a lot of people don't have that opportunity is because there's a societal stigma around addiction. And it is often seen as some sort of personal failure if you are addicted to a substance. And the truth is, right, that addiction stems from pain. It is so important that we address individuals in addiction with non-judgment, with care, with services when they're ready. This societal stigma that there's something wrong with you is hurting all of us, which is exactly what you're saying. Anna talked about how she showed up before recovery and takes accountability for who she was bravely, because I think A lot of people in addiction feel very lonely and isolated, and they feel shameful. And Anna's saying, hey, you know, I acted a way that I wouldn't act today in active addiction. One of the things that you said that I want to address is addiction stemming from pain. And I would like to add undealt with pain, unresolved pain. When we experience certain painful situations in our lives, that go unresolved, which most of the time does, because usually people don't have the capacity to hold ourselves accountable and acknowledge that we contributed to someone's hurt. Oftentimes it goes unresolved and stems into addiction and other things that are not serving us well. And so one of the things that made me think about is a book called What Happened to You that I'm reading right now, which are conversations on trauma, resilience and healing by Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. And the question that people typically ask is, what's wrong with you? Whereas a lot of times, and to Anna's point, her experience is like, what happened to you is really a better question so that we can get to the root cause of where this pain came from and how to deal with it. Absolutely. So Anna actually shared that she's actually bipolar and that she didn't know that until she began her recovery One of the main reasons that we become addicted is mental health, both depression and anxiety. And then in my recovery, also discovering that I have bipolar, which I would have really appreciated finding that out years ago because it explains so much. Almost everyone is suffering from mental illness because if you're feeling really good, you're not going to start drowning yourself in alcohol and drugs. That's part of it. The anxiety, I would drink away. And then the depression would come and I'd drink that away. A deep-seated feeling of there being something very wrong with me from a very young age. I think that we're wired differently as addicts. 
when it may not matter what our background is, how we were raised, there's something broken within us and broken in a beautiful way that tells us that we see things differently. We're extremely sensitive, even though the intent of what we're receiving isn't meant to be mean or negative or unloving. It's how we receive it and we receive it in a broken way. And that's just the way I was wired from a young age. Where it came from, I'm sure there's little instances here and there that I'm not going to go into, but it certainly wasn't because I had a traumatic childhood. I mean, we all experience trauma because we experience trauma in our own ways, and it can be big, major events, or they can be small, scattered events that are kind of peppered through our childhood that add up. But either way, it's trauma and not one is better than the other, whether it's big or small. It affects us in the same way. It goes into our bodies, into our tissues, and it rewires our brains to be in this state of fear constantly, the feeling that we're wrong and there's something wrong with us and we're broken. So by that point in her life, alcohol had become such a crutch for her that it was difficult to live without it. And as somebody who has experienced obsessive thoughts, not exactly the same, but a similar where it's difficult to control the mind, right? I can relate to that need. For me, an obsessive thought, it feels like if you're really, really hungry and your stomach is growling and someone's talking to you and your stomach rumbles, you aren't hearing them. You're thinking, I'm hungry. But it's like that all day. Before I sought treatment, my obsessive thought would have been I need to harm myself and it would just keep coming like hunger pains all day long until I did something about it. And addiction is similar to that in that those thoughts are constant and they're constant until you deal with them, which is why asking for help is so critical and so necessary. So we talked about what it looked like after she came home when the recovery process started. So it's really scary to start over, especially when the addiction started as a teenager. When I was in high school, I started to discover alcohol. And when I would drink, that feeling of being broken or unattractive or awkward, I always felt really awkward. (laughs) I think I am just awkward forever and ever, and that's okay. I embrace it now. But when I would drink, I would immediately feel attractive. I would feel like I fit in. I would feel like I'm funnier, felt like I was smarter, all these things. And so I wanted more of it. Whatever that was, I wanted more. And in college, it snowballed because I had this freedom, But I was not mentally or emotionally mature enough to handle college when I went. When you start drinking, your emotional maturity halts, comes to a halt when you begin the addictive behavior. When I got sober when I was 34, I had the emotional maturity of a 16-year-old still being rewired in my brain because I can act like a spoiled brat sometimes, or that's like my instinct to go to first before I can stop and observe and reset. But that's come with practice and a lot of mindfulness. So when I went away to college and I was supposed to be studying and focusing on school, it was all about the party for me. Fast forward to not completing college, which has been a very shameful thing for me to 
admit over the years because I went for enough years to <laughs> have graduated. I just could not decide what I wanted to do with my life. So I moved to Colorado. Totally reasonable. It's what you do when you don't know what you're going to do with your life and you're not going to finish college. You move to the mountains. I was in a horrible relationship with a guy out there that was mentally and emotionally, verbally abusive. It was a disaster, but luckily that came to an end and I met my now husband and we got married out there. My partying out there was pretty insane. I mean, I lived in a resort town and I was a bartender and I was a good bartender who made a lot of money. I did nothing responsible with any of that money. That was another issue for me. But anyways, that's a whole nother podcast. We got married out there and got pregnant out there with our first son and then moved back to Ohio. And when I had my first son, I was having debilitating postpartum anxiety, which I didn't even know was a thing. They talked about the baby blues. That's bullshit because <laughs> the real deal is postpartum anxiety and depression. It is scary as hell and it needs to be talked about more than the baby blues because baby blues is that's a crock. And I feel passionately about it because I thought once again, something was so deeply wrong with me. Like I'm in this new mother. It's supposed to be butterflies and unicorns. And I am terrified of this child and being around my child. So I started drinking. And oh, look at that. The anxiety would lift, right? Just just like that within 20 minutes. And that was probably when my most dangerous drinking took place because I wasn't only responsible for myself, but I was responsible for another human being. And that carried on until my next son. And then I was able, thankfully, by some miracle to stay sober during both pregnancies, because I know for many alcoholics, it's not possible. And then once I had my second son, before I was even healed from my C-section, I was drinking. So my healing process was longer because I wasn't letting my body uh, bounce back and heal before I started putting poison back into it immediately. Both times I was pregnant, I was obsessed with drinking, even though I wasn't drinking. And that is a huge red flag for alcoholism. The fact that I couldn't drink it, but I was counting down the days until I could again. A normal drinker may think a couple of times like, oh, gee, I, I kind of miss drinking wine. I don't even know. I don't know how a normal person thinks. They don't think about alcohol during pregnancy like I did and counting down the moments until I could drink again. Getting the baby out of my body, getting home and being able to pour myself a glass of wine right away. It was like one of my biggest thoughts in the front of my mind was sweet. I get to go home and drink. That is not how a normal person thinks. And that is a major red flag for people who don't realize, you know, with alcoholism, someone may say, oh, I just went a whole week without drinking. I must not be an alcoholic. Well, what happened while you were not drinking? Were you uptight, more anxious? Were you angry? Were you bitter? And were you only thinking of alcohol every one of those days of that week? Because that's not normal. Normal drinkers can drink and not even they don't give a shit. They don't think about it. It's just not a big deal. They can have fun without it. This is my husband. He can go to a wedding. I'm like, sure, I won't drink. I'm like, but you can. Are you sure you don't want to? He's like, I don't need it. What do you mean you don't need it? Like, that's crazy. He doesn't care. Somebody could tell him he can't drink for the rest of his life. And he'd be like, okay, that is a normal brain. <laughs> He's got other issues, but no, I'm kidding. He's great. That is how a normal brain works. And so anyway, I got off on this tangent about addiction and how it shows up even when you're not drinking. It shows up big time. People who stop drinking good for them. But big but, what are you doing to heal from the reasons why you were drinking in the first place? If you just stop drinking and you don't do it, and I'm not just talking about 12 steps, there's many ways to recovery. But if you're not doing the work 
and getting mindful and healing and getting therapy and things like that. You are just a dry drunk, what we call it in AA. You're just sitting there, a ticking time bomb. The resentment and the anger is building and you don't have the tools to deal with the emotions, whether they be good or bad. The drinking is only such a small percent of the whole problem. So you put the bottle down, but then you've got to do the work, the really, really hard work. So then when you came back, when you came home, what did that look like? When I came home, the treatment center gave me really detailed plans and instructions on what to do if I wanted to keep my sobriety going strong. And I, at that point, was so ready and willing. And I'd already felt so much better that I was like, oh, hell, I don't want to throw this away. I'm already feeling the effects of being even just a little bit more clear-headed. I'm sleeping better. Physically, I'm less bloated. I have more energy. And it was only like that had only been like three or four weeks. And I was saying to myself, well, if I already feel this much better, why would I self-sabotage and throw this out the window? So I'm going to listen to these people, even though I hate authority and I hate listening to what people tell me to do. (laughs) I'm going to listen. I'm going to do what they say because I think they know what they're doing. And clearly my will up to this point hasn't done very well for me. So I'm going to listen to somebody else. They told me to go to 90 AA meetings in 90 days. So I did that, did not miss a one. I went to IOP, which is intensive outpatient, which was for six weeks after I got back. So I was going to a meeting every day. I was going to IOP three nights a week in Cincinnati and trying to be a mom. My point in this is if you want something bad enough, you don't find excuses. You show up for yourself and you do the work because I know that it's easy to say, oh, well, I couldn't get to that meeting. I couldn't do a meeting today because, you know, so-and-so. No, no, no. You, and again, this is coming from a privileged background because I do have help and I have resources, but AA meetings are free. Getting there every day to keep resetting your mind every day for 90 days in those beginning days when your brain is in complete, like almost mush because it's like rebuilding itself. 60 minutes in the room with other recovering alcoholics is so impactful and so important. And so I did what they told me to. And I started to listen and I started to meditate and I started to pray in the morning. And I had my journal that I would start to do. And I got a sponsor and I was going to the meetings. I was meeting people. All of it was completely out of my comfort zone. But I was learning how to live, really live for the first time in my life without numbing. In order to let that happen, you have to change all the people, places, and things. You have to change everything. Most things. I mean, I still have the same family (laughs) and a lot of the same friends, but you have to completely, you have to flip your brain inside out and the mind, body, and spirit needs to be reset completely. I can imagine that being in a space where there are individuals who are or have experienced what you've experienced. That's what builds the bonds and that's what builds the community. And that's what helps us to get to a place of acceptance of moving forward on the journey, because that's when we know that we're not alone and that when those times get really difficult, we can reach out and ask for help or we can reach out and say, hey, I'm having a hard time right now. What are you doing that's working for you? There's a little bit of a guide there that makes the journey a little bit more endurable. This community with collective suffering, collective background, and collective truthfulness, and the healing of that 
when I returned from my treatment for mental illness, I found in my treatment that my addiction was codependency and workaholism. And so I also did 90 meetings in 90 days. And my 12-step room was adult children of alcoholic and dysfunctional homes, which is codependent-based. In a similar way, there is a collective background, a collective truthfulness, and an accountability to continue on that healing journey. A reset requires work. It requires work because we're addressing habits, but it also requires work because we're addressing brain chemistry. And having that recommendation of 90 meetings in 90 days and fulfilling on that really sets us up to have a different mindset. And it also sets us up to have this community of people who are also on their healing journey. Yeah, I can resonate with that. I think that a huge part of the healing journey for me has been accepting my flaws and sharing those things with other people. But first, it's like the self-acceptance. I think that's where it starts first. And even if you're struggling a little bit with that self-acceptance, when we find the courage to be in spaces with other people and to share what we're going through, and we give them the permission to be there for us, that helps us to also have more self-acceptance for what's going on And it strengthens us at the same time. Having community is so important. I think the importance is that we can lean on others when we can't lean on ourselves. And it sounds like that's what Anna was able to do in her journey of becoming addiction-free, of healing herself and her traumas, and getting to a place of mental wellness by now having knowledge that she was bipolar. When you can't name something, it's hard to fix it. Because of recovery, she was able to have all this insight. Now she can put together a plan to be able to be better, to be well, and to show up better in the spaces that she's going to be in with her family, with new friends, or in just her recovery altogether. Absolutely. I think it starts with accountability. It starts with recognizing, I helped to create this. I have the power to heal it. I have the power to change it and having knowledge of the resources that are out there. We talked about the privilege of being able to go to treatment for a month. But then she also talked about the fact that the AA rooms are free and there's meetings every day and there's also resources online. And what a gift that is to be able to know that those resources are out there, are available and are free and that so many people are welcoming and want you there. There's, I forget how many meetings a day in the Dayton area. So you can get to these meetings all throughout the day. Now, because of the pandemic, uh, one of the gifts of the pandemic is that there's so many meetings now that are on Zoom that you can find. So if you don't have transportation or if you're too tired or having a low day and you're like, I just need to tune into a meeting, pop open your phone or your computer or something and listen in to a meeting. So the 12 steps are basically 
a reset that you can use every day. You work through the steps one through 12 with your sponsor. It takes months, sometimes over a year to work through the steps, each one, each one, each one. You make amends. You do an inventory. You find out what your responsibility is in all of your problems. We all are responsible for something in our problems, which was a big wake up call to me because I thought that I was always the victim of my problems. We find out what our part is in our problems. We find out where we owe amends to other people. We turn our will and our lives over to a higher power, whatever that means to you. It doesn't have to be God. You can call it Buddha. You can call it the spirit or light. It does not matter. Just a power greater than you. So you know that you're not always in charge. And it is a soothing feeling to know that when you begin to believe that internally, that you can turn it over every single day and know that something else is in control. All I have control over is my attitude, my thoughts, and my words and my actions. All of this is part of the 12 steps. I mean, I'm leaving out so much because I. This would have to be like a 20-day podcast where I talked from morning until night about the 12 steps. And you show up and you start to listen. And then when you find somebody there who kind of uh, resonates with you, that's when you can approach that person and ask them to be your sponsor. Usually it's women asking women. That's what they because they don't want relationships to start between men and women. They, you know, so it's usually a woman asking a woman, a man asking a man. That is a humbling experience. So there you're already losing or you're already learning humility right off the bat in so many ways when you begin recovery. But approaching someone and saying like, hey, will you listen to my deepest, darkest secrets and, you know, help me through the healing process? It's a big deal. But it's also amazing because I found my sponsor within the first week or two when I got back from treatment and she's been my sponsor ever since. So we've become very close and she is a miracle in my life and I love her and I've called her and told her so much of my shit and it's so funny how over the six years how my shit has evolved because (laughs) I think in the beginning I would call her complaining like, oh, my husband didn't unload the dishwasher. I'm so tired of this. This is just so hard. And then now it's turned into like stuff like that is so menial and meaningless and so dumb. And now I'll call her because there's like a legit something weighing heavy on my heart. And it's a little bit more, I guess you could say, on a deep level, a little bit more uh, profound than stuff that really doesn't matter in the long run, like little stuff that I used to call her about. We chuckle about it. And then, you know, sometimes you pick a sponsor who doesn't work out and you have that conversation, which is another lesson in humility, which I've never had to have because my sponsor and I have worked out this uh, all this time. But some people have to have that conversation like this isn't working. I need to find another sponsor. And then you start again. Then you attend the meetings when you can, but you really try to get to a good amount every week. And I tell you, it is like medicine when you go. You can walk into those rooms feeling unbelievably crummy for whatever reason. And being in that room with collective suffering and background and truthfulness and honesty is incredibly healing. Well, let me just say there's never been a time I've walked out of the rooms where I've said where I've regretted going. And a lot of times it's not because what I've gotten out of it. Many times it's because there's a newcomer who's there who's so low and struggling, who's just trying to get a day of sobriety under their belts. And maybe it's a connection that I made with them and I helped them in some way. There's nothing more healing than that. So being of service, 
you know, showing up in those rooms to be of service is uh, so goes both ways. No matter how much sobriety you have under your belt. I mean, there's people that are at the meetings have 30, 40, 50 years. They keep going because they need it and the newcomer needs it. So it's just beautiful cycle that just it keeps going, going, going. You need it for your entire life. Something that just came to mind is that it really blows my mind that today we are still a society that has the audacity to believe that we are not flawed and that we still uphold and nurture stigmas to things that we all experience on a daily basis. The fact that that is still the norm in our society is what keeps a lot of people from healing. It's what keeps a lot of people addicted to substances. It's the cause for a lot of suffering and silence. And it just really blows my mind that that is still our society. That is the norm of our society because there is somebody, everybody, no matter how much money you have, no matter what your background is, how smart you are, we all have somebody in our lives that have experienced jail, that have experienced addictions, that have experienced some type of abuse or trauma. And the fact that we don't make it okay to not be okay and to be flawed is the very reason why we hold on to so much shame and guilt and why we suffer in silence and why it takes us so long to heal, to get to that place. There's a lot of people out here who are not healing because they are afraid of sharing. And it just blows my mind because I guess I'm trying to figure out, we're talking about it through in all of our episodes, which is why we create this safe space for people to share. But I'm still trying to figure out, like, how do we, on a mainstream level, how do we eliminate that? Because so many people are plagued by the, just the negative stigmas that we uphold. I personally think that judgment is armor. Anyone that I meet that is judging other people for their challenges is themselves trying to cover up for their own perceived lack. It is their armor to say, I am better than, but the truth is they don't believe in their own worth. So if I do not believe or trust in my own worth, I am going to try to tear other people down with gossip and judgment so that I can be self-righteous. To me, that is a sign. You have not addressed whatever it is that you need to address and you are not on the healing journey because judgment is armor. And so I think the more we, we talk about judgment and putting others down in that light, it is woundedness. Judgment is a tool to not have to look at ourselves because we can look at someone else and say, look, I'm better than that. And the truth is, no, you're not. We're more alike than we are different. And if that's the narrative that continues to be spread, I think we can get to a place of healing collectively and individually, of acceptance, of holistic wellness as a society. It just, you know, it should become a norm that we are all dealing with traumas from our childhood and adulthood just because of the messed up stuff that goes on in the world. And hurt people are hurting people. When we don't deal with things and we don't make these types of conversations the main narrative, we in turn are fueling those hurt people to continue hurting people instead of healed people 
healing people, healing people, you know, so that we are more light than darkness. It's going to be a challenge to get there. But honestly, Bridget, that is the goal for me. That is what I want my contribution to the world to be, is that as I go through challenges in life, like Anna, like you, like all the women that we have interviewed, that we take those hardships and those challenges, learn the lessons, heal through it, and then help the next person. That's why Anna's story is so powerful. It is because she shares very vulnerably who she was before, how she showed up in the world in a way that may be harshly judged by people because our society says, if you as a mom are drinking every day, all day, there's something wrong with you. And what she is saying is, I am, I am an incredible human. I am a woman. I am now taking my journey, my lessons. I'm coaching others. And I am standing up in the community and helping. I am not what I did. I am not my addiction. I am a woman on a healing journey. And her bravery in sharing that will help to destigmatize people in active addiction, knowing that addiction is numbing pain, which I think is so powerful that her definition of healing is stepping back and observing the pain because she spent so much of her life numbing the pain. And the truth is, like, we want to point at someone who is in active addiction and saying, what's wrong with you? When so many of us are numbing the pain in ways that are quote unquote acceptable. We're workaholics. We're people pleasers. We are addicted to television or our phones or gossip or anything that is acceptable forms of addiction. But they're the same. They're numbing us from observing the pain because observing the pain is hard. And it actually means getting better. Yes. And when we get better, we stop serving those things that continue to hold us down. And we start to step into like our full potential. Anna left us with some advice. I think my last thought is to realize that you're never too far gone if you're in addiction or anything at all, mental health, mental illness. You're never too far gone. There's somebody out there who's done something similar or worse. So don't ever think that you're a lost cause. And don't ever think that your problems are so minor that they can be overlooked if you're struggling in some way. If you're having like, oh, well, I'm, I'm depressed sometimes, but not, not as depressed as her. So I'm just going to let it go. All that adds up and it builds and it builds and it builds. And this life is so precious. Don't wait until you're 90 and then look back and regret saying, I could have lived this life so much fuller, but I was too afraid to speak up and take up space or ask for help. It's never too late for you. You are not a lost cause. You are precious and you are worth putting the time in to heal whatever it is. And sometimes diving deep into our healing journeys is the life jacket that we need. If we can see the healing journey, the healing from traumas as the life jacket that we need to be better and to get to where we actually want to be, I don't think it makes the journey easier, but it's such a worthwhile decision. Because a lot of times we just need saving. Anna left us with guidance on 12-step programs. But she also said, you can reach out to her. So we will be including her information in the show notes. 
And she is genuine about that. She wants all of you to know that you are precious and that if you're ready, she wants to support you, which I think is really powerful. And I am so grateful that she chose to be on our show. Thank you, Anna. I see I see new tides carry on through the years, transform through the tears, the audacity of you going through it all, the audacity of you trusting self all along I see new life I see new time